And welcome to Now It's Dark. Uh, We're back here with a new episode. If you haven't already, please check out our last episode on Everything Everywhere All at Once. I debated the film with my friend Eric Pleasy. He was a big fan of it. I was not as big of a fan of it. But if you're interested in that, be sure to check that out. And just a note, to get access to all of our episodes, our full back catalog, as well as some bonus content, You know, we have episodes on The Shining, Vertigo, Paul Thomas Anderson, lots of goodies. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash nowitsdark. Now, speaking of everything, everywhere, all at once, it actually led the charge. It got the most nominations at this year's Oscars, a film that didn't get really any nominations. I think it got three technical ones, but none of the big ones. Now, I don't think there's a film that's been more divisive this year amongst critics and audience members then Babylon. Uh, the fourth feature from Damien Chazelle is a period piece about Hollywood's transition from silent movies to sound. It stars Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Diego Calva, Gene Smart, Giovanni Odepo, and Lee Jun Lee. And the film, which Chazelle spent about 12 years working on, a real labor of love, was considered a critical and commercial failure, garnering a 56% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and earning $56 million on a 70 to $80 million budget. So today, we're going to be talking all about this film. Uh, before we get into it, spoiler warning. We're going to be talking about a lot of spoilers for this film, so be sure to check it out if you haven't already. Uh, but if you're one of those people who kind of likes to, I guess, get a little bit of insight and analysis into a film before you watch it, be sure to uh, stick with it. Uh, like in our previous episodes, we're going to be talking today with a guest. And to talk about the film, the history of early Hollywood, what it's all about, we're joined by friend and filmmaker extraordinaire, Sebastian Simon. Thank you. Bonsoir. So I am indeed a video and filmmaker. I also teach film editing in in a university here in Busan. And I am a programmer and curator for the Busan International Short Film Festival. By the way, speaking of the Oscar nominations, I was checking. Best Achievement in Production Design, Best Achievement in Music Written for Motion Pictures, and Best Achievement in Costume Design. That's what Babylon received. Yeah, all technical kind of awards. And none of the, you know, like not Best Picture, Best Director, no acting nominations. Considering how important music is if at least it can win this one it would not be undeserved oh indeed indeed uh but i i guess we both saw the film pretty recently and we were both kind of excited to talk about it i think we both had overall positive impressions of the film i wanted to ask you uh to start off when did you see the film and what was your initial reaction to seeing it so less than a week ago uh here in a movie theater in busan um, I really enjoyed it, uh, but it it did feel overwhelming, not in a bad way, but just that all those montages, that the way that music propels the, so many parts of the film, especially in the ending, the climax. So it felt very exhilarating, like coming out of that movie and hard to, not a film that's easy to forget, I, I would say. Yeah, definitely. It's I'm still kind of 
trying to figure out how I feel about it because I, I went to see it with a friend at a kind of a late night screening. And I remember him turning to me at some points in the film and being like, man, this is awesome. And then at other points, I'd look over at him and I, I, he did not, like, he just seemed dumbfounded. And I, I was kind of feeling the same way of like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this. I mean, the movie basically opens with, amongst other things, an elephant just <laughs> defecating all over, all over everyone. And I mean, they really show it in graphic detail, right? Like you just see everything. And and the movie is full of kind of gross out moments like that, whether it's projectile vomiting, defecation. Um, the parties are... <laughs> yeah. This is just the first couple of minutes. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild how, uh, I guess, out there this movie is, especially compared to Chazelle's previous films, which, you know, w whether it's uh, Whiplash, which has an extreme element to it, but is far from kind of having any sort of gross-out elements. Um, La La Land, which is, I mean, it's, it's a great movie, but it, it's pretty tame. First Man, which is very tame, I think. Uh, stylistically, I think you can make the case that he he kind of goes out on a limb sometimes. Uh, particularly with First Man, I feel like he, he did a lot of interesting things with the way he shot it. But overall, he's kind of been considered a safe director, which made this movie all the more surprising. I suppose whoever expected something from him with that movie must have been immediately like a double shock with that elephant shitting scene if, if ever there was a statement of intent clearly laid out in the opening minutes of a movie like this is it yeah totally and and i mean the whole time i was watching the movie i kept kind of thinking about other films that this resembled i mean not only boogie nights and movies like la confidential kind of like movies about a rise and fall set in LA. It's hard not to think about these sorts of films, but also like movies like Casino or Goodfellas. Like it has a, a very Scorsese-like quality. Uh, and I think, uh, of course, Paul Thomas Anderson in Boogie Nights was drawing from Scorsese amongst other things. So you can kind of see the influence there, but also like, I think there's a lot of John Waters in this movie. <laughs> you know, it, it's hard to avoid kind of seeing some of that deliberately provocative, deliberately kind of gross out uh, scenery as not being inspired by someone like him. Yeah, the use of vulgarity, visual or actual dialogues, like profanities, but especially visual, it's, yeah, John Waters, I can, I would agree, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Fellini, I think, is another probably big influence as well. I think Chazelle even mentions him uh, in terms of kind of the carnival-esque aspect of it there's there's just so many scenes where there's so much happening there's just this panorama where the background is full of of stuff full of action and you just get so many unique characters that just kind of pop up into the screen as well as just kind of like this i don't know there's almost like a circus like quality to it uh, a grotesque element that i think fellini was very good at capturing yeah for me some of the moments of babylon reminded me of part of the, the the Monty Python and the meaning of life like that <laughs> <laughs> right because yeah like vomiting like all those like yeah take sh taking shits on screen or showing an elephant do it I suppose but it's yeah I mean most people will just not even think to f 
include this in a movie and right voluntarily gross it up <laughs> well yeah and especially like someone who's kind of considered like a almost like a spielberg like figure you know and spielberg is kind of famously safe and family friendly and and almost kind of like hollywood prestige and for someone to kind of deliberately i guess destroy this image of themselves is is interesting it's provocative and it's something that really attracted to me attracted me about the film and i must also say too like th this movie when it when it hits high watermarks they're great i would say the opening party scene the the whole sequence that takes place on the the film set or the multiple film sets uh, I thought the the whole sequence with Tobey Maguire was incredible. I mean, my God, I, I never expected him to pop up in the movie in this way. And just like, you know, the, the ending kind of coda of Boogie Nights uh, or the final sequence, I guess, before the coda, I, I always considered like, you know, it's super dark. It's super memorable when he goes to Alfred Molina's house and, the, you know, that boy with the firecrackers and stuff. And I really felt like Babylon hit a similar groove with this Tobey Maguire sequence where it's like, all right, this is weird. This is dark. And then it just gets so much worse. Yeah, it, I, I would understand if if people would point out to that moment of the film as the moment where it sidetracks too much or mm. darkens too much. But especially compared to the joyfulness of the first half, the party, it's exuberant. There is... You know, there, there's someone dying. Uh, right. <laughs> there are people dying kind of all over the movie, actually, but it's still mostly considered farcical. But that moment, you just can't... It, it, it stops being funny, and it's on purpose, of course, but... And yet, it's not... And in that Tobey Maguire moment, there is really two parts, right? When they first meet, and it seems funny enough, he's proposing he's pitching very bad ideas of movies but he's not a filmmaker so they they can they think they can politely dismiss whatever he's saying and we might think the same right but then it takes them on a tour of the of his los angeles and it's like oh right that's the not funny anymore los the asshole of los angeles is such a great moment i think but it does after that, the film cannot come back to what it was in the beginning. That sort of, oh, look how funny it was to take drugs and make movies and party and sometimes die of it. It's like, no, 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 this is, this stops being comedic or burlesque, enfin, comedic or slapsticky or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Look at the drama. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that was one of the strengths of the film, to be honest, because I heard a lot of critics kind of say, oh, this movie is a mess. And it, it doesn't really add up. And I, I feel like it's messy, almost deliberately so. I, I think Chazelle has mentioned he wanted everything to be kind of... I, I forget which actor. I, it might have been Tobey Maguire, actually, before he arrived on set, or maybe when he was kind of just getting into character on set. And someone mentioned to him, like, he's like, I, I can kind of be a bit extreme. And, and they're kind of like, yeah, you can go to 16. Like, <laughs> if 10 is the limit, be a 16. And I feel like that's that's pretty apropos for the whole film. But I don't feel like it was messy. I, I feel like he does a really interesting thing where he he allows you to think that the movie is just kind of farcical. 
that it's just sort of this kind of glib survey of all these people. And, and, you know, every moment, and we'll come back to this point later, because I think it's, it's kind of a profound one, but every moment when you just see like either someone die on screen or the mention of someone dying, and it's just kind of like glibly mentioned, like, oh, you know, Jack Conrad got married. And, and by the way, a fan killed herself last night in, you know, protest basically. Uh, I think he's, he's allowing the audience to think that almost to laugh at it or almost to kind of like treat it as frivial. And it lures you into this mindset of the characters of just thinking that this is one constant party. Never get bogged down by the details of someone happening to die or something like that. Just move on to the next party. Until at some point, you know, they hit a wall where they can't, they realize they can't escape their own fates. And all those characters that you see throughout the movie just kind of die or pass away or or be spit out of the Hollywood machine, they reach that fate too, except you spent the whole movie getting to know them. And so now all these deaths that meant nothing to you before and were just kind of tossed aside, uh, they become kind of meaningful to you. And you, you realize in retrospect, looking back, that all those previous deaths, they also had a story. And that, you know, this kind of spectacle machine of Hollywood is doing that to them too. So I, I did feel like there was a structure and I, I feel like it added up to something. I don't think the movie was without its weaknesses though. And maybe we could talk about that too. Uh, what did you, because I know you you mentioned before we started that you felt like as more time went on, you, you kind of became more aware of what you felt like the weaknesses of the film were. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say having never made a feature film, but you know, like if you think, Considering the, even the the, the the actors that you laid out at the beginning uh, as starring in the film, right? Uh, if you think of their characters, some of them get uh, disappear from the movie somewhat quickly enough. Uh, Joven Adepo's Sidney Palmer. Yes. Yes, the character exits the Hollywood machine on his own uh, accord after being profoundly disrespected and that's I think my favorite scene the blackface scene mm. or the one I would call the strongest mm. but after that his character just shows up one last time at the fi final montage but it was established as one of the five co-leads if you will from the first half of the film but it does disappear from it similarly with Lady Faye played by Lee Jun Lee she's very important she's she has such a great introduction scene, uh, the classiest lady uh, everywhere she goes, but she it's hard to really uh, believe in her romance with Margot Robbie's character because we actually don't see any of it. And then she's being asked, uh, commended not to see that character again, but we haven't seen them together, so that's hard to really invest into. And then she does disappear as a character until that last discussion with Brad Pitt's character. And so in a way, the movie, I think, is rather imbalanced in how it tells the story of those two characters. Um, and they play very interesting pieces of that Hollywood puzzle from that time, right? The, the musician that, that they were hiring all over for parties on set everywhere, uh, and who kind of almost benefited from the transition to 
talking movies, but not really benefited from it. Uh, the mystery, the Asian woman of mystery, who later became completely typecast in Bad Asians. This has this is very interesting characters in a way. I think more original characters than Brad Pitt's movie star character who does resemble the, the lead character from The Artist or from Singing in the Rain. Even Margot Robbie, she plays a kind of rising star that, that we've seen in other films. But Jovan Adepo, Lee Jun Lee, they, I would say, have their characters are put, have more potential and I don't know the movie, I don't think the movie really gives them as much as it gives the other characters. So I see that if that, if there's a weakness, I guess it's it's what I would say. Like, why make it just three hours? Right. Give another hour to the movie. Balance the second half just a bit better with those characters, um, and then and then it's a true epic. And then it's a true like Sergio Leone style epic of a movie. It's already long. I argue it sh- maybe should be longer to serve those characters just a bit more. The movie, in a way, is much more centered on Diego Calva's character, so and he, of course, gets a great arc. But those two other characters, they kind of disappear midway through the film, and I think that unbalances the movie more than those other excess, like the Tobey Maguire moment. No, those are great, but I just think two characters disappear from the story. Yeah, I, I mean, to be fair to Giselle, and you kind of already alluded to this, I think he cut a lot out of this. I I know for a fact there were scenes that were cut out of this. The script, I think, was originally 180 pages. And if you think about, you know, how much longer that is than three hours, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of backstory and stuff like that. that, I, I mean, how much longer than three hours it would be on screen when you consider all the, like, party sequences and stuff like that. Um... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot that was cut out, but I, I also think, you know, quite simply, you just have to make choices as a, as a survey. If you're doing a, a portrait of a time, if you're doing kind of an ensemble piece, you have to make these choices. And I, I think he made the, the choice to go with the, the Manny Torres kind of character as the person you're viewing these things through. I, I also wouldn't totally agree with you that the, the Margot Robbie... Uh, Nelly Leroy and, and Brad Pitt, Jack Conrad characters are not that interesting. I agree, we've seen them before. But I think the way that Chazelle kind of shows them at, as products of their time is compelling because I think a lot of other films show this type of character, but they don't quite kind of connect them to the conditions of their time in, in quite the same way that Babylon does. You know, I, I honestly haven't really seen a movie about the 1920s, specifically about 1920s Hollywood, that gets this deep into what it was like at the time. And, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. Uh, before we kind of get into some of the history, and there's a lot of interesting stuff here, I just wanted to mention a couple of things I thought were maybe weaknesses of it. It's things I'm still kind of mulling over. Um, I think it's a little, there, there are repetitive kind of visuals and and even kind of character ticks, if I might call them that, that became more and more apparent to me. And I I still don't know what to make of them. I mean, Chazelle seems to constantly be dollying in to trumpets. 
There's so many shots where he does that. But he never gets really into the trumpet. <laughs> Just getting fully into and it. Maybe that's why he keeps doing it. He's like, maybe on one of these shots, I'll actually get inside of it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it just seemed to be... I, I think I remember that because I, I read a review where someone kind of said like, oh, he's clearly out of gas. He's just repeating that same kind of camera trick over and over again. I kind of felt like there's probably another reason to it, but I also kind of wondered, is there another way to to do that? Like to show something that dynamic involving the band without kind of just repeating the same shot over and over again? And similarly with the characters, I kind of feel like there's just so many moments where they're freaking out, which I, I get it. Like this movie's excessive. It's supposed to be excessive. It's supposed to be a 16 out of 10. But it does just tonally in terms of the balance of the film. I mean, it does become a little exhausting. And maybe that's the point, but I feel like there's a more artful way to do it. And so I, I kind of wondered, like, do we really need to see you know, Nelly Leroy freaking out at someone again. Like, is there something else we could do with her character or one of the other characters? And maybe that kind of ties back into your point. Maybe we should have gone into more depth with some of the other characters. I remember my friend mentioning after the movies, like there are things that happen in this movie that may have ruined it for me. And I I don't feel that way personally. I, I, I feel like the movie overall is is really good uh but i do think there are very questionable choices that he made uh, in terms of tone the ending which we can come back to a little bit later i thought was was too long and excessive um but overall i feel like this is a very strong movie i respect him for taking a lot of risks i love that he portrays this period of time in in more depth than we're used to seeing. And I just, I like that he used the social capital or the, the capital that he built up uh, over the last few years making movies like La La Land on a film that's this provocative and this kind of uh, gross out and, and all over the place and excessive. Um, and, and part of the reason I think he does that is because he really did his research. And if we look into the history of this film, it's kind of amazing. I mean, just starting off with the characters. Uh, one of the things that Chazelle mentioned is kind of like the inciting idea for this whole project is when he noticed, you know, reading something, doing some research, that there was a spike in deaths and suicides in the late 20s and early 30s, what we might now call deaths of despair, uh, deaths caused by drinking too much or drug use or or suicide. And this was right around the time, you know, late 20s, early 30s, when movies made the transition from silent to sound, uh, the, the emergence of the talkies. And he kind of drew from this uh, his inspiration for the film. He, he likened the impact of sound on early Hollywood to, quote, a wrecking ball hitting a fragile society still in its infancy and still figuring out its own parameters. Plus that that moment in history coincides with the Great Depression. So, right. Regardless of Hollywood or another category of work, right? It must have been a period where yes, suicide, despair, etc., was very much in the air for everyone. Yes, I think it was particularly L.A. though that seemed to 
display some unusual trends, even for that time period. They had come of 20 years of basically becoming the center of everyone's attention and possibly thinking that it would, if some people must have thought that it would never end, right. it would have been them, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, he calls this a disaster film, which is really interesting when you when you reconsider what it, what it's actually about. And it's just kind of, I think, looking at the damage that this transition, this technological change uh, caused on society at the time. I think the title, too, conjures up all sorts of interesting images. Um, you know, apocalyptic destruction of uh, societal collapse. and But also debauchery, excess, death, um, Kenneth Anger, Hollywood Babylon, D.W. Griffith, Intolerance, the Bible. You know, there's a lot of interesting kind of resonances and, and imagery here. I like that the, the book by Kenneth Hanger, uh, Hollywood Babylon, literally starts with the first words are elephants. <laughs> it's about elephants, also in that movie. Like, I think, I think Chazelle literally wrote the first scene thinking like, oh, an actual elephant. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think he, he said specifically that it, there was no conscious attempt to like adapt parts of this book. But I mean, it was obviously, he's obviously read it. It was obviously in his mind. So, I mean, it very well could have just kind of come out unconsciously, even if it wasn't deliberate. But it's really interesting when you look at the the real life counterparts that these characters were based on and just how this kind of wrecking ball of, of the transition to sound impacted their lives. Because it's pretty interesting. I mean, we can start with Nellie Leroy, the, the Margot Robbie character. And she was largely based on the silent film It Girl, Clara Bow. And she got that name because she started a movie called It and just kind of became this sensation, this kind of provocative, uh, you know, sexy kind of film star. And much like Leroy, uh, the real-life Clara Bow had a pretty horrific upbringing. Margot Robbie had this great quote where she said, Clara Bow had probably the worst childhood of anyone I've ever heard of. Clara's parents never got a birth certificate for her because they already had lost two children and they felt certain she would never make it past her childhood, end quote. And that's like oof, pretty telling of how horrible her upbringing was. I, I think her mom... Uh, really did suffer, I, I think it was either schizophrenia or some sort of, uh, you know, very serious mental illness. And I believe when she was fairly young, her mother actually tried to kill her. Her father reportedly may have sexually abused her as well. So she had a, a really awful upbringing. Unlike in the film, however, Leroy's real-life counterpart fared better in the transition to sound. Uh, it wasn't quite as bad as it's portrayed in the, in the, in the film Babylon. Critics spoke uh, pretty favorably of Clara Bow's voice in her first sound film. I think it was called The Wild Ride. Uh, and she also didn't really have the same fate as Nellie Leroy. She actually moved away from Hollywood after a certain point. And uh, I believe, like, settled down on a ranch with her husband. She actually had a relatively happy ending. Unlike the real-life counterpart for Jack Conrad, the, the Brad Pitt character, who's kind of a composite of several stars. I think the biggest influence for him was this guy named John Gilbert, who's a silent film star. 
But there's also people like uh, Douglas Fairbanks, Rudolph Valentino, and much like Conrad, John Gilbert actually died tragically after failing to successfully make the transition to sound. Apparently, like audiences really did laugh at his voice in some of the films that he was in, some of the sound films that he was in. Though, unlike Conrad, uh, Gilbert actually died of a heart attack after years of heavy drinking. I believe he died in his mid-30s, too, which is pretty young. I mean, Brad Pitt is, is almost 60 in this film. So, uh, obviously, in Babylon, um, you know, Jack Conrad commits suicide. And this was actually based on a co-star of Jack Gilbert's in uh, The Big Parade. Uh, his name is Carl Dane, and he had a pretty, like, awful end. Um, he didn't really make the transition to sound and he was basically just trying to find work. He was trying to like, he went to MG MGM just trying to be an extra, even a carpenter. And he ended up getting like his last $18 stolen from him by a pickpocket. And he, he went home, he looked through a scrapbook of the photos and reviews from his film days and shot himself. And so like he, there, there's some really like, sad history there. Yeah, some other people too. Um, Lady Feizu is based on Anna Mae Wong, as you already mentioned, probably the, the first major Asian American uh, film star. And uh, she starred in such films as Piccadilly and Shanghai Express by the great Joseph von Sternberg. Uh, the character of Eleanor St. John was inspired by people like uh, the writer Eleanor Glynn. And if you read Hollywood Babylon, she's all throughout that. Uh, and renowned gossip columnist Luella Parsons. Uh, you already mentioned Sidney Palmer. I think he was more inspired by like kind of the working class jazz musicians of the time, but also like around that time, uh, the transition to sound, like Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong were in films at that time in, in shorts. And I believe in the film, it's called Check and Double Check. Members of Duke Ellington's band were actually ordered to wear dark makeup to, light, uh, to hide their lighter skin. Uh, finally, we can mention Manny Torres as well. He was based on people like Rene Cardona, a Cuban-born director, as well as the Mexican brothers Joselito and Roberto Rodriguez, who developed a sound recording system. So a lot of interesting characters there. You kind of kind of already mentioned that you were like really drawn to the uh, the Lady Feizu and Sidney Palmer characters. You found them the most compelling. Um, what was it about them? that you, you were most drawn to, do you think? Because it's easy to imagine how people, whether they're actors or not, let's say people of that industry, uh, how how all those changes that happen at, with the Hayes Code and that, how they would suffer from it actually the most. Mm. Movie stars like Gilbert or, you know, white actors uh, and all that committing suicide or drinking themselves to to scandals and, and deaths. Okay, it's 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 still, it's sad, but it's still shiny and kind of, oh, the legends of Hollywood. But working class people, black musicians who performed on, in ensembles on, behind the, 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 behind the camera, um, minorities, of course, they would actually suffer more from it. Uh, but because the code was, put them on the side more so than white movie stars who failed to trans to transfer to the sound to the talking movies. I wish he had shown more of them just because they are they are not the stars 
even in the context of the story of Babylon, uh, Sidney Palmer, he almost becomes a star, but he decides to, he has the realization that that's not going to work for him. But what happens to him afterwards, still? What does he do for a living? Because obviously all those bands that they hired on silent movie sets to perform music while the camera is rolling, that cannot happen anymore with right. sound being recorded on sets and it's suddenly so quiet. So what do they do for a living? Clearly, they lose a lot of jobs over that transition uh, as well. Not just movie stars, but everyone. Especially the little persons, the behind-the-scene musicians, the background actors, like maybe Lady Faye. Who, um, that, uh, Lady Faye, what I, what I find interesting in the movie is that she also seems to have much more uh, self-esteem from the start, I mean, hmm. even as she's performing in those parties and playing that role, she she seems to have uh, her head on her shoulders hmm. and you know, being very a very disciplined person as a character, and she does see the the wind change, right? The air of respectability and the rules that are being implemented, and she finds her own solution. She chooses to move out and go to to Europe. So she has in a way a more clear vision of those of that situation compared to any other character even even Mani uh Mani Torres. And so yes we see her leaving and she has a last conversation with Brad Pitt's character but it's mostly about him that moment mm. as he's about to commit suicide in the movie. So okay and she can feel it it's going to happen. But what about her? And then, what, you know, uh, how does an Asian-American actress move to Europe in the 20s and pursue her career there? Like, I don't need the movie to go to France uh, necessarily, but what push, where is the moment where we see her take those decisions? It's, it still feels a bit expedited a bit, I think. Yeah, and we were actually talking before about how uh, Anna Mae Wong moved to Germany and befriended Marlena Dietrich. And uh, who else did she befriend? Lenny Reifenstahl. And that's insane. Like That would be an incredible movie or, or short film in itself. Uh, so I, I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, I think it would be incredible to see a film about like, I don't know, Duke Ellington or something like that, like working in movies and stuff like that. At the same time, I guess because in in the example of, of uh, Lady Faye, because she does seem to kind of be, I guess, a little bit more level-headed or something, and she does seem to to have a future and be kind of clear about how she's getting there. Uh, similarly with, with Sidney Palmer, I, I mean, I think because he kind of decides to go, you know, quit films and, and enter the jazz circuit, like there's less to kind of ponder about, uh, you know, there's a lot to think about and, and be curious about in terms of, you know, specifically what's going to happen and, and where is their story going to go. But in terms of like, are they going to be okay? I, I kind of felt like, well, they seem to have it together. Like, yes, they're up against a lot of barriers, but 
I was just left a little bit less curious about whether like existentially they're going to be okay. Because I, I found like with, you know, the, uh, the Jack Conrad, John Gilbert character, um, and the, uh, you know, the Nellie Leroy, uh, Clara Bow characters, like they're just, they both seem to come from a, a particular time and place in America where there was this kind of belief, and it still kind of exists in some form, where if you work hard enough and you're, you know, plucky and, and lucky, and if you, if you kind of go, you know, to a place where you can reinvent yourself, that you can make it, that you can become a star. And there's a real rootlessness to this sort of existence. I mean, a lot of the people who came to LA, I think, a lot of the actors had this kind of similar sorts of sort of being, you know, where they they didn't have roots or they left the roots behind. They they were cut off from where they came from. They made up names, only. Huh? They made if up names. That, yeah. yeah. I mean, Nellie Leroy had her her father. Her mother is in a mental institution. Jack Conrad just keeps getting married to different women and, you know, he doesn't seem to have any family. He doesn't have children or anything like that. And like there are certainly worse existences to have than either one of them. But at the same time, when the winds change, it's just very easy to be totally like unstuck from time, you know, just totally cast out. And for me, that's a really compelling idea. And it makes it much more tragic, I think. Because you have, it, on the one hand, this idea that, you know, anyone can make it. If you just work hard enough, you can become a star. And on the other hand, you have this idea that there's almost like people are almost destined to fail. Like when your time is up, it's up. It's over. And, you know, Chazelle kind of mentioned this with, uh, with John Gilbert. Like he didn't actually have that bad of a voice. Uh, it was almost like he said there's something subtler and more insidious behind his demise. And there's this great quote that he mentioned from, from John Gilbert himself, where he said, quote, it's not that I had a bad voice, it's that I had a voice. And, which, you know, they kind of interpret as meaning like people had fallen in love with this idea of him being this kind of silent star that they could project their, their own imaginations on. And the minute he opened his mouth, the, the spell was broken and people fell out of love with him. And I, I find that very compelling. This and, I, and in a lot of like kind of American tragedies, uh, the idea that on the, you know, you, you have this simultaneous push and pull of like, yes, just work hard and you can make it. And no, there's you are fated to fail. Like there's something out there which no matter how hard you try, you're not going to make it. And for me, that's very tragic. Yeah, it's like the idea that it's always lonely on top. Right. I suppose, right? And you get that with that with his character, for sure. Um, the idea of the voice, it's like, before, to prepare that uh, recording, I rewatched a, a few films. And I don't want to get into that too much, but uh, right now, but in Singing in the Rain, there is that first encounter between Gene Kelly and... And uh, Debbie Reynolds' characters, and she, they compare acting on stage and acting in movies. And she says, "Oh, you're just shadows. You don't even have a voice. Uh, you're not real people. You know, you you're not flesh and blood." Kind of this idea. So the voice, right? That 
that one thing that seemed to have been missing, no one actually missed it. No one wanted to hear it, maybe. That, and then suddenly you hear it, and okay, that person is suddenly too real. Right. It's like, like you said, the spell being broken. That's It can be as simple as that, because yes, it's not just creaky, funny little voices like this who says dialogue. It's just, then they're a real person. Yeah, and it's interesting to contrast that with the people who did make it against all odds in a weird way, like Greta Garbo. You know, she kind of, she doesn't have what you might consider like a, a classically American voice at all. She's Swedish. Or, um, you know, someone who came later, Ingrid Bergman, who also doesn't have, you know, a typically sort of what you'd expect to be popular at the time. But yet I, there, there was something about a mystique, I think, attached to each one of them. But they're the exceptions, you know, and there's a lot of people just pushed out. And yeah, it, it, it can be very tragic. I, I like that Chazelle, now that I'm thinking about it, that he, he has both of these kind of archetypes. Uh, people who probably should and would have made it had they not been institutionally pushed out because of their race or gender or something like that, combined with people who never would have made it because they were just too wild or unstable to begin with. Because I think Hollywood is very much fueled by both types, you know? <laughs> it seems to be like it, for sure. I was thinking about, like, the transition, right? The, the, or you go the, the Chaplin way and you and you tease the, the voice for another decade, like in, in more <laughs> movies, you dabble with sound, yes, but the voice. If the audience are to, to hear his voice ever, then he's going to make them, you know, cr like expect it and toy with them or tease them. And in one movie, he speaks, but he says made up words like, oh, what a goof. And then finally, when he has something important to say in The Dictator, then we hear him and it's like, okay. Then it's almost like a multi-movie apotheosis of based on on the idea of yeah finally we hear his voice. Well, it does have a lot to say. Like it's not just badly written dialogues, which is sort of what you what we see in in, uh, in Babylon when when they laugh off the voice of Brad Pitt's character. But yeah, he's also he's also on he's on screen saying just cheesy dialogues. That, yeah, right, right. It's, you know, Chaplin could be maybe the greatest tease in movie <laughs> history. <laughs> the number of years he made people wait to hear him speak. Um, yeah, I thought it'd be interesting to you to kind of get into um, a, a little bit more of the social history of the time, because, you know, a lot of these stories are really interesting on a, uh, you know, the personal stories are interesting. But the the social history is really interesting, too, because if you look at L.A., during the period where Babylon is set, there's just this huge kind of transformation going on, socially, economically. I mean, by 1920, Hollywood had become the fourth largest industry in America, which is kind of amazing to think about. Um, I think it was between 1910 and 1920, LA became California's largest city as people kind of flocked there to be a part of the movie industry, to, to try to make it. And the film industry was was still kind of in its infancy. I mean, the idea of, of a movie star was still very new. And I think a lot of the characters, both at that time and even in the movie, are still trying to grapple with what this means to be a movie star. 
I think one of the most interesting things about Babylon is how it shows that in addition to all the death and destruction that's inflicted on the characters and that they experience, the time was kind of a, a lot more diverse and open-minded than many viewers may have expected today. You know, it wasn't people just kind of like dancing to the Charleston every now and then. It was like, it was much crazier than you could imagine. I was reading this article in the, in Telerama. It's a French uh, magazine that's very famous for, and, and, and of course for the, for the movie reviews. So this film critic, Marie Sauvion, she was saying about this that, so I, I translated, but she, she says, we forgot that in its early days um, in Hollywood, 50% of films at one time were made by women. There were women directors, women producers, and they were ousted. It was open to minorities, to women, to Jews. It was open to anyone who vaguely knew how to do something, who had some kind of talent or an idea. It was possible you could work in Hollywood. I think that's kind of an interesting idea also, like fairer than, or at least for a time, fairer than one might think. Uh, I like the, f the women director that we see in Babylon, and we only see her for that big epic kind of filmmaking crescendo like scene in the first third of the film right because it's like oh wow yeah right of course you know alice guy blaché or those yeah I, and of course like yeah they they did get ousted when when it became more regulated and it's interesting because that uh, that director i think it's kind of based off of dorothy asner the director at the time very prominent uh, is played by uh, Chazelle's wife oh, and one of the producers on the film, Olivia Hamilton. So that's really interesting because he's like, he's saying in interviews, like, no, she's a director. Like, trust me, she can play a director very easily, you know. And she like, she nails it. She's so good in that, I, I felt like. Yeah, I, I, it's another side character that I wish we had seen a bit more. We see her a second time when they do another kind of filmmaking sequence where it's the first the first attempt at recording sound on set. She's also good there, but that's the only two moments that character has. And it's like what what happens to that very cool director lady? Like right. show us more. Well yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting her specifically and who she's based on, Dorothy Asner, because you know if you want to talk about diversity and, and the relative openness of the time, you know, with the, the large number of, of women who are working in the industry. I mean, Dorothy Asner was also living with her same-sex partner at that time, and it was kind of just accepted. You know, I think one of the, the biggest stars of the time, too, William Haynes, also lived with his partner as well, who was, who was uh, gay. So, I mean, it just seemed like there was a kind of laissez-faire attitude towards these sorts of things. I mean, another thing too is, is just drinking and drugs. <laughs> you would be shocked to find out after watching the opening party scene in Babylon where they're just snorting cocaine. You know, he, Manny Torres uh, brings her to this room just full of every drug you can imagine, heroin and ether, I think, as mentioned. And, you know, everyone's drinking just excessively. I, you know, Jack Conrad, Brad Pitt appears drunk half the movie particularly right before he's about to do his scene he can barely like make it out of his tent to to be on set he's stumbling around and then it's kind of shocking to remember oh yeah this is during prohibition <laughs> right 
Um, some of those drugs actually were legal at the time or around that time. Uh, but even after they kind of tried to outlaw them, like they were just rampant on film sets and, and, you know, offset too at parties and stuff like that. And some people have mentioned too, like prohibitions seem to, at least in LA, increase drinking, not decreasing. <laughs> well, based on that movie, you would, you would, you would be forgiven for thinking that it's true, I guess. <laughs> But I like that that opening scene, the, the party. They're they're going. You would think that it's exceptional, but then no. The, the next morning they go on set. Right. See you in three hours or whatever. Right. <laughs> on on set they keep drinking more, like you said. Yeah, it's. But that's what makes it also irre irresistibly funny at first, like that that moment where he's barely making it making it up the hill where the camera is positioned where he has to be right and he's followed by like 15 people who just <laughs> kind of want to make sure that he's not gonna fall down it's like the the fool leading the flock yeah <laughs> and then he's in front of the camera you think that he's going to collapse but no as soon as they say rolling he's like oh okay yeah let's do it and right. he has like five minutes of enough clarity that to pull it off and as soon as it's cut, it's like, ah, oh, you know, and it's yeah. well, but it, those, that moment in front of the camera, that's all that matters. And it's so great, too, because Spike Jones is playing that director. <laughs> and it's some, I think it's like an amalgam of different actual real people. I, I got the sense that maybe like Von Stroheim was, was one of the people he based that director character off of. But like, there's like this real communal feel like this band of outsiders feel to this whole community um that is really cool like you feel like as an audience member even you're part of this party like the minute that he says cut and they get the shot against all odds after you know their camera they broke all their cameras manny torres had to run uh, you know drive however long distance away to get another camera they're losing light just in the nick of time he brings it back they get the shots. Not only do they get the shot as the sun is setting, but a butterfly lands in Brad Pitt's shoulder. And it's the perfect moment. And when he says cuts, everyone just starts applauding. And what's great about that is Margot Robbie said she was there on set for that day to watch. Uh, and she said, you know, Spike Jones said cut in the movie. Everyone applauded. And then Damien Chazelle said, no, Spike Jones said cut. We got it. And everyone clapped. And then Damien Chazelle said, cut, we got it. And everyone like in the real movie clapped. And like, it really shows one of the greatest parts of filmmaking, which is the communal aspect of it. Plus that moment, it, it, I would say as the climax of that very entertaining and very super well edited scene with that music that just rises up and it's also interesting to your point on diversity, like the director played by Spike Jones is probably supposed to be a German director, right? Well, John Gil, John, um, not John Gilbert, sorry. Uh, uh, Jack Conrad. Jack Conrad. Of course, he's the white leading movie star, but his partner is not white. Right. Manny Torres is from Mexico and you do get a lot of yeah diversity on that set, that fake set, I guess. And... To see all of them just caring for that most primordial thing, the sunlight, right at the perfect moment. Plus, yeah, the <laughs> the butterfly, which 
I have to say, like, how would Brad Pitt's character, or how would the, the, the actor know that a butterfly landed on his back? Because he does say, oh, did you see that butterfly? <laughs> and it's like, it's behind you. Oh, okay, whatever. It was great. Right. It was, I would say, frankly speaking, it's probably hard to top the first third of that movie, or the first, if that's the first half, let's say. Because the party sequence plus the the movie making sequence are so great, yeah, and so like um, the the music just brings you in, and it, the crescendos are crazy, the camera movements are great, and yes, culminating on that moment where they are all having that communal moment, it makes the first those two moments, that first half, let's say, very you want to be with them. But after that, you kind of don't anymore because it just keeps, it goes downhill from here, literally. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there there's definitely a crescendo at that moment in the film. Um, and I, I think it's kind of interesting when you look at potentially why things were more diverse and more open at that time. I mean, I think it would be a stretch to say like there was no racism or no sexism and stuff like that. But we're talking about degrees, you know, relatively speaking and stuff like that. And I think, you know, one thing that made it probably more open is that there wasn't kind of the the prestige attached to films or film at that time. It was kind of considered a lowbrow art. And it attracted people from kind of a, an urban theatrical culture, I think. You know, Chazelle says like one step away from the circus. And, and maybe even in some cases, the circus, you know. And there was just more tolerance, you know, in well, this Less kind of regulations. Yes. Until I mean, there were. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a mix of a lot of different things coming together. You know, the newness of the medium, the lack of prestige, um, the, the actual kind of like circus or theater background of these people they're not coming from like the highest class theaters they're coming from more of a working class backgrounds plus they literally build the industry up from nothing from like orange orange uh, farms or whatever so the infrastructure itself doesn't exist it, it's all throw stuff at the wall and see what see what stays but there's not even a wall yet <laughs> yeah right they have to make the wall you know, it's it's interesting. the The opening party scene takes place at this kind of castle, right? And it's it's amazing. At least the exterior, like the interior, I think is a, is a sound studio. But watching, you know, like Margot Robbie drive up to it in the morning after when she's kind of like running outside, I remember thinking like, oh, this is cool, but it's just a little sparse. Like, there's just not much there. And then like reading about it and thinking about it, like, yeah, that's what it was. I mean, that place was a real site for a lot of these parties. They didn't just make this set. I mean, that castle is where a lot of these parties took place. So like, it's not an exaggeration to, to say she would walk out of this place and just see almost like a desert. Uh, or even for the film sequences, you know, like when they're making those movies, I think they're making like five movies at the same time. It is in the middle of nowhere. You know, and that speaks to how much of a frontier California was in L.A. at that time. And it does connect with this kind of really interesting idea about America as as this place of openness. You know, it, it's mm. always 
mixed in with other forces, counteracting forces. But it, it's hard to deny that that exists and that existed. But I think along with that, you get a, a very major dark side to this too. I mean, zooming out a little bit, um, LA at the time in the 1920s and 30s, it was kind of a, a violent place to be. I mean, it became number one in the country in America for uh, burglaries and homicides. So there's a lot of gun violence, I think, going on. And, you know, the kind of laissez-faire attitudes of the time, the drug use, led to some pretty major scandals. I, I know that uh, Kenneth Anger in Hollywood Babylon kind of wrote exclusively about a lot of these things. I mean, the the party scene, for example, that's drawn in part by the the famous uh, Fatty Arbuckle scandal, 1921, where uh, he had this kind of like long weekend of debauchery in, in San Francisco, and it ended up with the model Virginia Rape dead, and Arbuckle accused of raping her. I think he had three trials uh, before he was ultimately acquitted. Um, it, it ended his career, basically. What I like about that scene in Babylon is that it's reminiscent of this, but then there's also a golden shower, so it, it's probably actually a, a Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's probably a, a middle finger at Donald Trump. Love it. It's it's probably both things. Um, and it, it's I, I think that's a moment where like the influence of Hollywood Babylon is probably like at its most prominent, you know, because it's because that's what the book describes. Those moments, those right. excesses. Not so much on set excesses or, right. yeah, yeah. So, and I, I would agree on the, the, except for the title itself, there isn't that much that refers directly to or seems to refer directly to the book. Um, not even the Toby Maguire moment, because that kind of, uh, that kind of hell is not, is not what the book describes either. It's, it's really those uh, movie star death, those fall from grace kind of yeah for sure yeah and all the kind of scandalous details i i mean one thing it's funny when you read the book uh and and you listen to interviews with kenneth anger like it's just impossible to tell what's bullshit and what's real and he's such a like funny and absurd storyteller that you almost stop caring i think that's one of his kind of magic tricks in a way is, is to really get you to stop caring what's true and what's false because it's just so entertaining and absurd. But he mentions uh, in a different part in the book, I think, how James Dean was referred to as the human ashtray <laughs> <laughs> because of being, you know, taking part of these like bizarre kind of uh, sex acts or something like that. It's like, I doubt that's true, but it's just, it's absurd that he even wrote that. And I, I believe that book was first published in France too, because it wasn't, no one in America would publish it. It's like that book must have been designed to shock and to provoke and maybe to, for, for Kenneth Anger to get a lifelong ban from all parties. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was to, to, to about Fatty Arbuckle and as it's described in the book, it says, the jury that freed Fatty made this comment, uh, open quote, 
acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel a grave injustice has been done him, and there was not the slightest proof to connect him in any way with the commission of any crime. On the courtroom steps, Arbuckle told the press, This is the most solemn moment in my life. My innocence of the hideous charge preferred against me has been proved. I am truly grateful to my fellow men and women. My life has been devoted to the production of clean pictures. For the happiness of children, I shall try to enlarge my field of usefulness so that my art shall have a wider service. The book like doesn't give a proper answer, just like, yeah, he was acquitted, but... Even with moments like this, the rest, I'm, I'm just reading like 10 lines, but the rest is just, ah, oh, even if it didn't happen, that book must in itself sell it, all those memories, right? But since it probably, since, since enough of it must have happened anyway, uh, it's, it does tarnishes, tarnish people's memory, but well, maybe they it, deserve to be. I, I don't know. If it didn't happen, or or if he was actually, you know, not responsible for her death, the scandal alone be, it took on a life of its own at a certain point. And you know, that was not the only kind of major scandal. Probably less noticeable to the public at the time, but definitely something that would be, you know, a major feature on film sets was just you know, the sheer number of people who got injured or died in some of these battle scenes. I mean, the the battle scene in the movie is drawn from a real-life account from, uh, I think it's the making of D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, 1916. And pretty much just like what happens in the movie, I mean, uh, the assistant director, one of the assistant directors of Intolerance, his name is Joseph Henneberry. He just happened to stumble across you know, this movie being made in the desert, in the middle of nowhere. And he saw this pen of actors. And some guy comes to him and is like, hey, do you want to help out here? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. I want to be in the movies. And so the guy is basically like, all right, just take care of all these extras because they're, they're going to be in this battle scene. And he was soon to find out, just like Manny Torres, these were actually junkies from Skid Row. They, they promised them a meal. And so they brought them all here. And everyone realized, hey, we have the numbers. Let's just revolt. And just like in the movie, uh, Henneberry had to ride around on a horseback, on horseback with a gun to keep them in line. Um, a number of people were reported to have died that day. Shockingly, when you have a group of junkies running around with swords and spears and stuff like that, who would have guessed? <laughs> And they, I think the most shocking thing about this, we don't know how many people died because Hollywood didn't start keeping track of fatalities until 1928. Yeah, that's, that, that's 30 years of filmmaking that where the number, the number could be one, it could be 1,000, like no one would know. Yeah. But it's another thing where in the movie it's kind of playful laugh a bit because you... You have Brad Pitt's character in his stent and there is a spear that just passes next to his face, but he barely notices it. Uh, it's a great jump scare for us mm -hmm. uh, as an audience. And yeah, you see the, the aftermath of that battle scene. But it wasn't taken that seriously on that side either, whereas over the years and until now, of course, stunts, right? Uh, 
Right. You don't you don't organize a battle the same way. Like how could you? But to think that it even one person dying was not enough to make that uh, safety concern kind of happen at the time. It's like it took way more. Right. People kind of still die on set sometimes, but it's really rare and it always shocks. But when you what you see in the movie is that yeah, it happened a lot and no one cared. <laughs> right. Just... Well, this sort of thing after you know the move to to talkies could only really happen on like you know production independent productions that happen outside of like Roar, the Tippi Hendren movie right. she made with <laughs> real lions where people Actual got like lions. scalped and stuff. Uh, films like this are like low budget movies and stuff like that. But in Hollywood, I mean, it took, yeah, it was a long period of time where people just died on set and we don't exactly know how many. And I, I think it's it's things like this, like these sorts of scandals that kind of led to the demise of this era of Hollywood because, you know, around the, in the, Late 20s, early 30s, you get the production code, the Hayes Code, uh, made with the help of the Presbyterian elder William H. Mays. I believe he was also the postmaster general at the time. And this led to just a lot of censorship of, you know, uh, sexually graphic uh, depictions in film, uh, interracial relationships. There were just so many things that were not allowed to be shown on film. I, I believe you mentioned like firearms. Or things that so couldn't be shown? They, well, I'm, I was looking at it through the, the Wikipedia page, but um, firearms, it says, it's one of those points where it says, special care must be exercised in the manner in which the following subjects are treated. Uh, the use of the flag, etc., etc. The use of firearms. You're like, so isn't a gun meant to shoot someone? Like, I'm confused. What? What you, what varying ways of using a firearm can you? Probably like if uh, I I remember reading things like you know the police should have or like if somebody shoots someone else they should be punished or something like that or like the good guys should if they use guns they should only be used in the service of the greater goods. You can never have a good guy like shoot someone, uh, you know, for a bad reason stuff like this. Yeah, they also what they what what rules they really in, uh, input was, for example, um, interracial couples, yes. things like this. So by that definition, in Babylon, when we see that movie making moment with uh, with the two movie stars, uh, Brad Pitt is not kissing a white woman, so that wouldn't work. But I guess it's probably also more intended to the the reversal, like a white actress and a, right. a non-white man, but uh, and obviously same-sex uh, relations and all this, like all this had to, had that the Hayes Code made it no, no, and certainly not on screen, but and and then by definition uh, off the screen as well. What's interesting about the Hayes Code too is like they had the Hayes Codes. Uh, in the, I, I believe it was like 1930 or something. They had some rules in place in either the mid-20s or, or 1930, but they were not strictly enforced. And so everyone just kind of ignored them. And the movies which didn't follow the code made more money. They were more popular. And so, because everyone's like, yeah, of course I want to see like a woman dancing around like in a skirt. Or, you know, of course I want to see these people like getting drunk on screen. Like it's fun. 
And yeah, so then they basically just had to like really enforce it. Like it became very strictly enforced in order to get people to follow it. And then, yeah, I mean, you just get a lot of consequences, like a lot of this kind of diversity that you had uh, disappeared. Uh, the the archetype of the Latin lover, for example, kind of disappeared. Uh, you get a loss of kind of racial and gender diversity, but you also get a, a loss of regional diversity too. Regional accents disappeared. You know, that kind of famous mid-Atlantic accent that everyone has, that kind of like Cary Grant and other people have, that was kind of just this generic stock accent that Hollywood adopted to try to make movies be as relatable to everyone, or to as many people as possible. They kind of had this approach of making everything generic, generic characters, generic ways of speaking. Uh, Clara Bow, who I believe was from New York, I believe, I think she's from Brooklyn, she had to drop her accent. And you kind of see this portrayed in the film with Nellie Leroy having to drop, I believe she's from New Jersey maybe, but she has to drop her kind of accent as well. And yeah, there is this kind of like standardization, uh, this push for more generic uh, characters and stuff. And I think you also get money more money, more corporatization coming in, as well as kind of more professionalism, quote unquote, coming into the industry as well. Um, Hollywood was a bubble in the 1920s and before. Uh, Chazelle says it was, quote, separate from Wall Street, separate from the East Coast, and separate from Broadway, end quote. And with the arrival of Wall Street money and money from the East Coast, as well as kind of these prestige actors from Broadway and other places like that, uh, a lot of these kind of actors and talent from poor and working class backgrounds are pushed out. And I think with their disappearance, the kind of working class sensibility that they brought with them also disappears. You know, this sort of attitude of like, I don't really care what race or gender you are. Like if you're good enough, you're working, you know, and like, I, I don't want to overemphasize that this was like, you know, a perfect society, racial harmony, and everyone was just totally accepting. I'm sure there were a lot of problems, but, you know, there was this kind of like organic diversity that happened. And yeah, a, a lot of that was pushed out. I mean, there was this kind of idea of respectability that was brought into movies that was very uh, kind of antithetical to the vulgarism of movies up until that point of where, you know, a lot of it came from like street theater and the circus and stuff like that. And yeah, it was just, it was very disruptive in many ways. Socially, a lot of people lost their jobs. Like we mentioned before, a lot of people died, whether through drug overdoses, suicide, and you kind of get this, this idea of, of a Hollywood caught between two kind of visions of America. You get the vision of kind of like anarchy and debauchery from the Old West. That's really kind of at play at the beginning of the film. And then you kind of get this vision of kind of this emerging modernism where you mix like corporate efficiency, professionalism, and moralism at the same time. And yeah, you see the battle between these visions in the film. And that's, I think it's a really interesting point in, in history, American history, but also Hollywood history. 
in the movie, I, I would say that it starts to play a lot, especially when they have that first filmmaking scene where they learn they learn to use sound for the first time and you get the sense that uh, that similarly to all those rules that 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 the times brought and the haze code and all and all that discipline on set suddenly you have to be quiet right. if you provoke a sound you're of the you're, you're being screamed at everyone is upset at you it's that wild energy that we get from the first movie making scene like you said we're outdoor we're shooting five movies at once everyone's screaming it's wonderful and suddenly it's so quiet and you hear everything on the microphone and the only person <laughs> screaming is the assistant director at everyone right that's <laughs> so it's a bit comical in the movie and you get the frustration it's it also kind of i would say cliche in some ways mm. The, because again, I feel like we've seen that in Singing in the Rain a bit. Actually, almost not actually almost moment to moment. The the the, feel, the director gets more and more upset, more and more screaming. Uh, the actress doesn't understand where is the microphone, why it's relevant even. Um, but still, it's just like for everything else, you can't do anything anymore. You, the rules are not clear. Silence on set. Camera, sound, you know, etc. It's like suddenly those rules are put into place. They reframe everyone's workflow. Right. Everyone, out even uh, probably uh, outside and also outside of sets, even. So obviously, it's not just the code itself. It's the that sort of discipline that people also had to now get for their way, the way they act. And then for the way they live, I suppose, that that can only follow suit. Right, right. right. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because even some of these technological innovations that come with the sound years emerged from, you know, this, this kind of wild silence uh, decade uh, or decades. Uh, I was just looking, Dorothy uh, Rasner actually, I think, helped develop the boom mic. So she emerges from, you know, the, the silent film era, but also kind of helps pioneer uh, the, the sound years, the talkies. Um, I think I was pronouncing her name Dorothy Asner, but it's Dorothy Arasner. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, yeah, that's one of the interesting things, too, is just like looking at all the interesting sorts of names and people from the past. Because you really get a sense of just like this, this real mix of people from all around the country, but also all around the world too. And I think it's kind of, it's interesting to compare the diversity of that time with how kind of diversity is talked about now. Because I, I think it's kind of become like one of the central concerns of the film industry, uh, particularly kind of in America and the West right now. And if you look at, at kind of how it's dealt with now, you know, it, it's much much more kind of institutional. It's kind of much more like top down in the way it's kind of managed. Um, and you know, I, there are definite reasons for this in, in more recent history, but it's interesting to compare it, I think, to the kind of the more organic kind of diversity of, of the silent film era, which I think was much more rooted in the working class 
Whereas today, I think diversity and, and kind of class are almost separated. And it, it's, it makes for a very different dynamic, I think, in the industry today. I, on a pure side note, in terms of film festivals, I see it in an interesting way, and not here in Busan for the short film festival, but let's say when you use Film Freeway to submit to a festival in the US, I pretty much every submission you you then have to you want to submit your film and then you have to answer a couple of side questions. You have to. But you can say like, oh I prefer not to answer, but well, but you have to they ask like, okay, what sort of uh, ethnicity do you refer to? What what uh, how do you identify as cisgender, mm. uh, non-sexual, whatever? Fine. You have all those categories, and and it's like you said, top down kind of. It's imposed to submit your film now, right? Which in many ways it's it's a it's a it's a result of the impression that most films that were selected seem to have been made by men. Mm-hmm. maybe white men I guess but um, whereas okay let's try to balance that statistics better you're like okay cool but then statistic based f- before actually being equality based or at least pretty much for for those two reasons combined so it's not right. terribly organic it's, it's important it's maybe not that organic in some ways or if it is it comes after me too also it comes after uh, enough enough uh, society Office shifting yeah right oscars are white the oscar for la la land oh no sorry it's for moonlight yeah yeah right uh, it's just okay let's please reframe this and so it's it's been interesting of course to see it's important uh but it doesn't happen exactly organically like right so, so society wise it's just it just shocks enough people at some point for whatever reason, and then okay, let's let's fix that. Sure, right. And it's it's interesting because I, I think in light of the history, like the the kind of diversity of of the silent years was it just kind of happened, you know. Like on the it, it's interesting when they're when they're shooting that kind of like intolerance type scene, um, you know that's no one mentions that Brad Pitt's co-star is, is not white. It's just, just happened, you know? Um, of course you got to mention too, that this is happening alongside like extremely racist moments in movies happening, uh, from the jazz, the, the blackface and the jazz singer to like birth of a nation and things like that. So again, you don't want to like look back at the past with rose colored glasses and think it's all perfect. But it is interesting in light of all this stuff that happened that like kind of institutions, um, this kind of like professional class, we might say, of people come in and kind of get rid of the diversity. And then eventually these same institutions are trying to, you know, reinstitute it. And yeah, I mean, it's, I think two things are true at the same time. You can see the need for it. While also, like, in light of these institutions' history and pushing it out, kind of question whether they're best positioned to institute it again, you know. Um, I I have to wonder if there isn't more organic ways 
of bringing it out, kind of more bottom up. And I think in a lot of ways that's happening with independent filmmakers. You know, I think people end up doing this simply by where they live, you know, like, oh, okay, I, I moved to a city. I just happen to be surrounded by a, a bunch of people from all different sorts of backgrounds and we're making movies together. And it doesn't really become something that people are conscious of. They're just kind of doing it. And I, I, I get a sense that younger filmmakers, um, also filmmakers who live abroad like us, I mean, we just happen to be in this situation. It's, it's not something that's, you're consciously plotting out every aspect of it. You're not like trying to institute, you know, percentages of people from certain backgrounds. You're just making stories with people who happen to be from different backgrounds because of where you are. And I, I can't, for me, that's just preferable. Like if that's possible, that just seems like the best way mm. of doing it. Um, because it's just, it's more communal. It's, it's more democratic in a way. But it's unfiltered. Yes. Contrary to like, like Hollywood movie industry systems, job interviews and whatnot, etc. Like, oh, for sure. Um, I was thinking, I was going to say that actually, like considering where you and I are and are making our, our films and short films, half Koreans, half foreigners, uh, very diverse in terms of gender. Russians, like, Uzbeks, right. you know, like... Uh, and and some of it is because we are not really into the proper Korean film industry at all. So who do we have that we can co-opt for our projects? And some are Koreans and some are not. And, and everyone get, mostly gets it anyway on set because people are here pretty much for similar reasons and ideally those reasons are what similar to what we see in babylon when everyone is so like oh, we've got it the last light of the day <laughs> yeah. perfectly in in time with the butterfly or whatnot it's just that's what most people who want to do those projects actually hope for those moments not not the politics of it at yeah. all but you, you always get caught up in it at some point for sure yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I think Babylon, in in a way, if you kind of zoom out, is is really just a, a statement on, on Hollywood and how it functions in general, like as a, not just an, a set of institutions, but also almost like this kind of cultural force in America and also in the world. Um, I, I think it's really bound up with technology it's it's really bound up with you know obviously a lot of negative aspects like we talked about the disruption of sounds i mean we we could also mention too just like what sound did with you know the quality of films being made there's some debate over whether films for at least a short time were kind of maybe like cameras couldn't be as mobile because they had to be like in Babylon, you know, they had to be in these little chambers where you wouldn't hear the, you know, the the catalog whirring or or whatever, uh, or the reels whirring. Um, and I think there's some truth to that. I mean, there were probably a few films which were negatively affected, especially when you look at like some of the silent films like uh, The Crowd, uh, where the camera's just going everywhere, or you know, even Sunrise or something like that, where the camera is really free to just kind of explore. Uh, I think probably a bigger sort of impact, though, and this is something that uh, Annette Insidorf brought up, 
But with the advent of sounds, uh, she said, quote, street scenes almost disappeared for about 20 years, end quote. And that's something I noticed watching, uh, I, I watched The Jazz Singer, uh, you know, in preparation for this. Very interesting, at times ugly uh, movie. But one interesting thing about it is they use some real locations. You know, they use a real synagogue. They use some real streets in New York. And I think they use a real train station as well. And with sound, of course, especially in the early days, like you have to be in a studio to be able to have it be quiet enough and have everything locked down. And so I think this further increased the distance of Hollywood from, from the streets and by extension from kind of the, the working class. Uh, it became kind of this walled-in institution, very much like what Manny Torres finds at the end of the film. You know, where previously it had been this wild west, you go out in the desert and find a film set. Now it's this walled off studio with a security guard, you know. And I think this separation is probably more important than the, the kind of visual limitations that sound introduced. Um, what, what do you think about that? I mean, I was, I was reading, again, this book called The Cinema is Dead, Long Live the Cinema. It's a French book, so Le Cinema est Mort, Vive le Cinema by Antoine de Beck. Hmm. But he, he quotes a few other books, of course, and one of them is written by someone named Martin Bernier. And the person says, the writer says, there was no for real formal loss, neither aesthetic nor technical in silent cinema. Even during the first shootings in 1926 and afterwards, it was always possible to film a silent scene with many camera movements and then to sound them. The blockage lasted only a few weeks. In 1928, when all the American studios were equipped, they were already using soundproofing means which allowed camera movements. So, so that's what uh, Debeck writes, the, the main writer of the, the book I'm reading. The idea that camera remains stuck in immobility locked in this filming box uh, to be able to better record the sound. That's kind of a myth. And that's a bit why I was saying that that scene is a bit cliche. It's like, yes, of course, there, there, there must have been a, a period of adaptation, like, like with any technology, clearly. Also, filmmaking habits, acting habits, etc. But just like every paradigm shift, it it takes a moment to to adjust, course correct, and then you're on to making films. I think what it did was open up more possibilities. Suddenly, you can have musical movies, you know. Uh, but the jazz singer, as you were saying, it's it's not even a talking movie for most of its runtime. It's basically a silent movie with some singing, and they weren't actually even supposed to have dialogue in that. Al Jolson improvised his dialogue, uh, and they. They liked it so much they kept it in, but yeah, it was it was it's mostly a, a silent film with a lot of title cards and stuff like that, and yeah, I'm sure there were some films that were impacted by that, but I mean, I think probably a bigger influence was the limitations of sound technology. I mean, there just weren't enough mics for studios to be able to make every movie a, a talkie, so they had to decide, okay, which films are going to be talkies, which ones are going to be silent films. And just the massive transformation that occurred, Chazelle mentions, if you look at variety from the end of the 20s until the 30, I think it's over three years. So the Jazz Singer came out in what, 1927, I believe. 
And from those three years until 1930, in Variety you have you know, this magazine devoted to silent movies with a little section for sound. Then the next year, I think, I believe he mentioned it was 1929. The next year you get, it's full of talkies, you know, information about talkies, and then it has a little section for silent films. And then by 1930, there's almost no little box for silent films. And that's three years. I forget whether these are the exact years he was talking about, but it, basically in three years, they were gone. And of course, people kept making silent films, but they were just considered so passe, so quickly, that it's amazing to think of that transformation happening. Yeah, in, in this sense, the again, the, that book that I'm literally hap I happened to be reading this while we decided to do that recording, but says, the transition from silent movies to talkies tells not of the death of a dying cinema, but of the resistible decline of an art at the height of its glory. It borrows not the classical, the classic historical trial of the fall of decadent empires, but that of a mythical fable, the unexpected and extraordinary disappearance of a civilization at its peak. The end of the silent era is a submerged Atlantis. It's kind of a beautiful version of this, like it's okay, very metaphorical. But then the movie is called Babylon, so that, that sort of tracks, right? But then the book quotes again this Martin Bernier, uh, this other book by Martin Bernier, who writes, The course of the historical evolution of cinema is not that of a single regular river whose waters flow gently from their source, which is proto-cinema, to the sea, which is present-day cinema even less so during the transition period to sound. The cinema river is capricious, often flooding with dead branches, wandering meanders, and old meanders that have now dried up. So when you think about this this way, yes, the silent movies, like in the, that magazine, right, where at, from one year to two years later, it's, it's not even in, in magazines anymore. It's like, well, the well dried up. Yeah. Similarly to what that river analogy, which I think was quite interesting in that context. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, things in a kind of nonlinear way, you know, where it's not just like, okay, in the past, there was a total lack of diversity. Now we have it like there, there are waves or like, oh, uh, you know, movies used to be kind of boring and no one talked and now, now they're great. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock, for one, called silent films the purest form of cinema. And I mean, it could be argued that, you know, if you want to get the essence of what cinema is, you know, maybe it's in silent films. I, I think that's kind of an aesthetic debate. I kind of wondered, you know, in light of what you just mentioned, that quote, what, what do you think Babylon means in the context of this film? Why do you think Chazelle called this movie Babylon? Because I think, I mean, there's a lot you could potentially draw from this, but is it you know, that these kind of characters brought upon this collapse of their own little, you know, movie civilization by, you know, debauchery and excess and, and stuff like that. Is Babylon referring to how other people saw them at that time? I mean, what do you think the title exactly means? Why do you think he called it Babylon? One thing that is interesting is that he did not title it 
Hollywood Babylon. So in that right. sense, it's it's only a, a half reference to that book, right? Right. So certainly, uh, in, in terms of choosing a title, yeah, the the mythological as nature of silent movie, like the purest form of cinema. So since then, it must have diluted itself, right? Uh, if you go by the Alfred Hitchcock uh, quote. But there was nothing pure about what they were doing <laughs> or how they were behaving or some of them, of course, well, some of those excesses. So honestly, I think the, that period was a, basically a hundred years ago. And even with a movie like this, where the director does his research a lot, what do we really know of what they were actually doing anyway? Much like we don't know what Babylonians were doing in Mesopotamia like 5,000 years ago or whatever, like. 5,000 years or 100 doesn't matter. Like, I barely know what I did last year. Right. Why do we, what do we know of, of those movie making f- fantastical people from the early 1910s or 20s in Hollywood? Like, nothing really. We don't know what it's like. We can only fantasize about it, just like we fantasize about mythological civilizations. So, yeah. I don't know if that's terribly original as an answer. But. <laughs> well, no, I, I think that's a great point because I, I think aside from kind of the the moral, biblical, mythical dimensions of the title, I think it also suggests what what Hollywood and what technology does to our memory of the past, which is it distances us from it. It creates this kind of separation. It creates this kind of void of understanding in a lot of ways. It replaces, you know, real existence, real lived history with this kind of spectacle. And I think one of the reasons why Babylon is is relevant today, is particularly relevant, is because we're living in a time where we're still kind of dealing with the social consequences of a major technological disruption, digital technology. Internet. The internet. I mean, uh, digital editing, everything from from the avid onwards, uh, deep fakes. AI tools to help edit your film. Chat GPT, uh, the volume, you know, that LED screen used in The Mandalorian, streaming. I mean, we're still dealing with the social consequences of this. And we're already seeing this same sort of disappearance take place of the past with all the movies that are being lost in the you know, move to, to digitalize everything. One thing that a lot of people have noted about the streaming platforms is that a lot of movies from the past are not really shown there. They're not platformed, so to speak. As well as, you know, when people move away from digital formats, whether they be actual film or even DVDs and Blu-rays, a lot of films don't make the cut. A lot of films are just lost. And so we're also being separated from our own recent history uh, through this kind of technological shift. And it's it's impacting not only how movies are made and and how they're, they're being watched, I think, uh, I, I think there's also like just a change in, in even the discourse around film. I mean, I, I think there's a parallel that you can make between kind of the the Wild West of pre-code Hollywood, the silent era, and the the kind of Wild West of the internet, 
in its early days. And how like, just like with the Hayes Code, uh, with the internet and social media, there's been this kind of emergence of this, this policing regulatory sort of movement or, or set of institutions. And it's still very much ongoing. And so all of these sorts of technological transformations and their impact on society, but also our relationship to the past, I think makes, makes Babylon very, very relevant. Finally, too, just like the, the tendency of Hollywood to kind of enter these periods where things just become very generic, right? Like in the sound years, you have the generic accents, the generic characters. And I mean, we're going through very much kind of a period like that with franchise filmmaking. That plus the use of LED backgrounds and yes. like, yeah, okay, let's make everything on this now. Like, why not? Right. It's obviously possible. So why why bother more? It's obviously complex and you know, a, a source of income and invention for a lot of people. But a lot of movies sort of, feel they feel the same you can make the best cgi you know i, I saw ant-man quantum mania i kind of enjoyed the character but the movie just feel like others it doesn't feel terribly it, it feels not it doesn't feel as interesting i think as the even the first ant-man just to compare those i was re again in that book that i'm reading they're quoting a journalist who wrote uh, a few a day after two days after the premiere of the arrival of a train in La Ciota station. So this is the first movie critic, maybe, you know, of that time. And the journalist, in, so a French journalist wrote in this magazine called Radical. I don't think that exists anymore, but, and again, I translated, but he says, he wrote, we were already collecting and reproducing speech. Now we collect and reproduce life. We can, for example, see our loved ones act again long after we've lost them. Yes, in a movie, right? You can And so this idea that it, it captures the dead kind of or it you know it 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 you can decades later after someone's death you can still see them, hear them, see them move. And this is eighteen he writes this in eighteen ninety five. Two weeks ago, I was at a conference on VR and metaverse in Seoul. And one of the roundtables was veered into a conversation on exactly that. Right. This company, this current company, which tested this, like recreating a digital human, uh, a double of someone's mo late mother. And so suddenly, suddenly in, in, in VR, she could, she could be physically, sort of virtually, but with that ghost, I suppose, right? And that conversation took over the roundtable because suddenly people were really interested. It's, it's too much in many ways, but it's like, no, it's the same point as that journalist in 1895 for the first movie, quote unquote, first movie. So I'm like, yeah, it keeps shifting and evolving, but some of the topics actually are the same literally as 130 years ago. It's kind of interesting. Another journalist or writer from that time from Russia, Maxim Gorky, was writing about movies being this 
this uh, strange world without color, color and sound, and everything is gray. Not the shadow of life, but uh, just like a shadow of life rather than life itself. Blah blah blah. But then he also writes that he can imagine that people will get lost in those fantasy worlds, like. 1896 is the same <laughs> argument as today with VR oh, or video media. games, you know, or yeah, right, or, or social media. Like, oh, people are getting lost in this. People have been getting lost in media since ever. Like, it's just, it's not new that much. The the discourse, at least, isn't new. The technology, sure, but when it it really plays into, I think, this kind of recent anxiety over the death of cinema, right? There's been a lot of ink spilled about this. We did a, a two-part episode on this before called The the End of the Movies. And there was this kind of uh, opinion article in the New York Times written by uh, Ross Douthat, where he basically said, listen, the, the era of the movies, as in like, you know, uh, a set of films that are made with kind of adult sensibilities uh, that were kind of you know, pushing things or, or, or kind of like meant to appeal to your sort of, uh, adult tastes, this is disappearing. And he, he mentioned a number of other things too, but you see not only a lot of like concern about this in the media, but also just in films and other films. I mean, 2022, you get the Fablemans, right? You get Empire of Light, the Sam Mendes film. And both of them are really concerned with, with cinema the future of cinema, looking back at the past and, and wondering, is this over? You know, is uh, is the time of cinema up? And it's interesting. I, I saw the Fablemans a couple days ago, and it really just picks off or picks up where Babylon leaves off. You know, like Steven Spielberg is he goes to see uh, the greatest show on Earth, Cecil B. DeMille. And I believe this is probably in the 50s. And, you know, that he could have been in that audience with Mandy Torres mm. watching Singing in the Rain. Right. And you see, like, new generations of people kind of growing up with this. Uh, it does seem to suggest that this, you know, the death of cinema is kind of cyclical mm. in a way. Um, because, like, Hollywood is is really, like obviously portrayed as this pretty ruthless machine. It just chews people up. It spits them out. You know, people actually die on set, extras and stuff like that. They commit suicide. They drink themselves to death. They have to move away from the industry because they're kind of cast out. And it's kind of pretty powerfully illustrated, I think, in just the number of people who die kind of in passing. Like we kind of mentioned this point before, the extra in the battle scene, you know, they're just kind of standing around this dead body with a spear in it. They're like, oh, well, he had a drinking problem. <laughs> the woman who kills herself because of Jack Conrad, I mentioned that before. It's just like, it really reminded me of LA Confidential, you know, where they're just kind of breezing past this newspaper headline. It's like, oh, by the way, this woman committed suicide. Anyways, uh, the, the cameraman who dies, he like, from suffers some overheating sort of heating air heat stroke or something. Um, Douglas Lemon at the Collider actually wrote something about this. He said, uh, "Quote: There's a quietly eerie quality to how life just goes on. The gears of the Hollywood machine 
always turning, even as onset deaths pile up. And he wrote this in reference to Babylon. It's also interesting, too, that the most prominent characters die off screen. You know, if you think about Jack Conrad, I mean, he's, you see the blood, mm, but we don't, uh, but we don't see his death. Uh, Nellie Leroy just like walks into this void of darkness. Uh, the producer, George Munn, he dies off screen too. And there almost seems to be this suggestion that like, if you want to treat death with reverence, you have to keep it. a camera away from it. You know, like, you can't make it into a spectacle. And I think that's a powerful comment too. So there, there is this idea that like cinema, not only, or Hollywood rather, not only like destroys a lot of the people involved in the industry, this kind of act of creative destruction, you know, where in order to produce greatness, you also have to destroy at the same time. But it's almost deeper than that. It's, it's almost suggested that Hollywood has to kill cinema, too. Because, I mean, like, cinema in the, in the silent years was like this kind of freewheeling thing. And they, you know, of the, this kind of like this group of outsiders and misfits, and they killed it. And then, you know, the, the kind of sound years come along. And, and if you look at, like, the you know, the, the 50s and 60s, there was very soon after a crisis when TVs came along. And, you know, huge numbers of people moved to the suburbs. They got TVs. TVs became more affordable. And everyone was worrying at that time, well, the movies are over, you know, because now they can watch them for free on their TV. And then, you know, you get the 70s and kind of like the new Hollywood movement and stuff like that. And, you know, more recently you have a lot of movies from pretty high name directors not doing very well. It's kind of interesting that all the movies I mentioned bombed at the box office. All these movies ostensibly about the death of cinema, no one went to see them. Yeah, right. If, if they barely make it to be screened in theaters at all, right? Right. Or, or if they're not being produced by Netflix for the platform, get a limited release or what, like... Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, for me, this, I agree on the cyclical nature, those periods of transition kind of coinciding with that discourse on death of cinema. And I would say right now, what is a bit different, I suppose, especially, but it's because of COVID, I, I guess, is that literal movie theaters literally closed down in a lot, right? Or struggled a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's been, we heard a lot of those during the last two years. So this is slightly different now because that's the, the venue themselves. Like what happens to an art form when its venue of choice actually closes down, right? It's it's not the art form with a capital A, it's the, the location, the, the theater, right? If there is no theaters, well then movies are not made for theaters anymore. They're made for other streamers or whatnot. But also I've, I'll be honest, I think it's also a, a very Hollywood... But the movie is about Hollywood, so our conversation is very Hollywood-centric. But at least in France, but I would say in Europe in general, we probably see things slightly differently, if only because a lot of of those uh, periods were actually overshadowed by the world wars. Right. Like, how do you maintain a strong film industry in France when you have World War One? 
where 10 million people, you know, when 10 million people all over Europe died. And, and what is cinema at the time showing of that? Well, they're not showing the tranches. They're not showing the front. They're showing the relief efforts, people at home uh, cheering for their soldiers. You know, the propaganda is obviously controlling how war at the time is portrayed in theaters be- behind the lines for the civilians. We even Paths of Glory was banned for years, right? Yeah, I mean, so you don't see cinema in France at that at that time showing too much of that, but Hollywood is showing it. And so when suddenly a Hollywood movie gets released in France in those years, it shocks because it shows either it shows too much, or it doesn't show it in nicely you know it's like mm. suddenly the relation to death on screen mass death and war is sort of felt very differently plus how many technicians of the french industry or european film industry died in in war even and then had to be replaced after the war ended and then similarly with world war Two. uh how many image films do we have of death camps right very few how come you know Jean-Luc Godard like uh, seemed to have been obsessed with this in so many films it's uh, it's there the that moment where where how do you represent the death camps and that 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 topics came back in those years because some movies showed it but then they are criticized as being oh recreation so they're making it as a spectacle so that's not really moral etc so death of cinema or death in cinema it's like a an overlapping topic at least from from my from maybe from the european perspective i guess uh and certainly that's what i'm also reading in that book that i mentioned so it's it's an interesting point it's a very holy it's a it's a movie about hollywood babylon so it's not about world war anything uh but those events happened at those times and you know the great depression at least in the u.s is not i don't know if it's even mentioned in the movie but it's it, it did if, if transition to sound didn't bankrupt some people a couple of years <laughs> later the depression did or both things, you know, so it's those real life events, they do factor in those discussions. Um, but also they factor in every aspect of society anyway. So why wouldn't they factor in cinema? But yeah. Well, one really interesting thing about America and Hollywood is, is just its capacity to continually change and evolve like in the most brutal way because once people kind of get pushed out you know or people who go bankrupt in the 30s or something like that um you know or these kind of like these new studios that kind of go go bankrupt i think it was a united artists i mean it lasted for a while but a lot of the major players were basically pushed out then you get kind of all these people coming from from germany escaping the the Nazis and some of the greatest filmmakers in the world who emigrate to America. And so America is just this constant site of evolution where, you know, I think 
yes, you do get some of the war, uh, not only portrayed on screen, like with the best years of our lives, William Wyler, but also people coming from the war, like John Huston, for example. But the, I guess the point is, to, to, to what you were saying, the industry kept humming along. You know, like it, America was not a front in the battle in World War II. They were sending their troops abroad. So the industry could be allowed to keep going. And I think that that gave them a, a huge leap in terms of a lot of, uh, you know, the their output at that time. That said, you know, if you want to talk about disruption, it's it's hard to leave out the French New Wave. And it's not that long after, 59, 60, that... Everything changes. And then now Hollywood starts to, you know, especially with Arthur Penn and Bonnie and Clyde, they're now trying to incorporate the influence of the French New Wave. So they're even like destroying, you know, like the the thing that overtakes all the characters in Babylon, this kind of new Hayes Code inspired, you know, uh, more rigid singing in the rain type of filmmaking then, then is overtaken by filmmakers influenced by Europe. And so it's this very interesting kind of disruption going both ways. I mean, the French New Wave, a lot of them, they were actually you know, critics before being filmmakers and very influenced by classic Hollywood cinema. So that sort of back, um, back and forth in terms of inspiration, it's... It's true. What I what I like about that topic of conversation is that if you consider the midway point between 1895, the Lumiere movie, and and let's say now, you get the year 1959, and that's when the 400 Blows was released. It was 64 years ago, though. <laughs> like, so if you, I like this, those topics, to be honest, the death of cinema, because, because it is cyclical. If you calculate when was, how many decades ago was that last sort of cry, feeling of crisis was, well, uh, and then you realize that it was maybe 15 years ago. Well, what was popular then? And if you push it back again, another crisis before, when was that? But, yeah, if you if you consider nineteen, let's say the fifties in France, well, sure, but it's still a few years after World War, a lot of years after World War Two. There's still need for reconstruction, right? For so the 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 new wave it, didn't, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It right. comes out of years of sort of self healing, um, people being you know finding out what topics need to be addressed at, at their time and and what topic maybe shouldn't be addressed. Like, you, you don't make a movie about the Shoah in, in 1959 the same way you someone might do it like Spielberg in the 90s, right? It's, and even when he does it in the 90s with Chinger's List, some people in, in Europe actually dislike it, like, because it's a recreation. It's not... Yes... It's dear to Spielberg's heart that that topic, and as respectful as the, I think the movie is, I think the movie is great. But some people took issue with that film even existing, right? Including Godard himself. Like, like it's it's kind of interesting to think of those topics um, in relation to 
sometimes the kind of trivial aspect of oh, cinema is dying I'm like no it's just changing it's fine it's gonna happen anyway like it's all gonna go digital don't worry about it um but when you bring it in relation to actual life events it i think it takes a different meaning even again even covid now you're like uh, it has disrupted more than a few movie releases or audience habits uh, the effects are just still too raw to be really understood i suppose but yeah and i think that that leads us to kind of talking about the ending of the film because if you want to talk about disruption you know and and kind of real social issues I, I think there's a real kind of rise in alienation, in loneliness, and just kind of social divisiveness, separation, and stuff like that, that the movies have always been kind of an antidote to, at least going to a theater and watching a movie with a bunch of people, has always been kind of, you know, for whatever else the movies have been, They've always been a way to get a bunch of strangers in a, into a room to watch the same thing and have a shared experience. And the ending of Babylon kind of suggests, listen, for as, as dark as the history of Hollywood is, this power to kind of bring people together will remain. It will continue to have this power of creating new myths and new stories. And the, it's very optimistic. I mean, Chazelle says... I'll just mention this quote. I guess I remain an optimist that the core thing of people getting together in a dark room to communally experience a movie, that will continue to survive. And I really wonder if that's going to actually survive. Like you kind of alluded to this before. Um, I think movies still have the ability to kind of enchant people, but they have to A, watch them, and even if they enchant, you know, someone on an individual level watching a movie on Netflix at home, that's a different power. That's a different effect than the effect of, of kind of it, that it has on a group of people in a room together. And I, I think that kind of shared experience, that shared sense of enchantment is in real danger of disappearing. I wouldn't be so optimistic as he is. Yeah, I mean... Going back to the beginning of the conversation, when you asked, like, oh, how, when did you watch the movie? And, you know, what did you think? Well, I can tell you that I watched it in a theater that was far from being sold out. Right. It's like maybe 20 people, let's say. And it was a 400-seat theater at the cinema center. So you're like, when is the last time that I... That's what not surprised me, but that's what I... At the end of that movie, because it becomes so meta also, I felt like, okay, hang on. That last scene where he, the character watches a movie, the, the, that theater is sold out. Right. They are watching Singing in the Rain in the, in the film. And I like, by the way, speaking also of visual rhymes, like the trumpet and all that, like how often he will have a camera that starts from a character, sort of uh, goes away, embraces the whole room. If it's not the theater, like at the end of the movie, it's the party scene in the beginning, the whole place and then it sort of uh, pushes back again on some detail or some character such like like the trumpet and here it goes from Man Mani 
embraces the whole room full of people laughing at singing in the rain back to Manny again. And and then, of course, that montage, right? But at that moment, I felt like, oh, yeah, when's the last time I, I was in a, so, a full house movie theater? I can't be sure. Possibly at the film festival, the, the big Poussin film festival. Maybe at some of the screenings of the festival where I work sometimes. It's rare, I feel. like, I'd, And I can't remember if on a regular movie screening, let's say, you know, I, The Way of Water, I saw it, it wasn't full. It, it's made two, two billion plus dollars, but based on the theater where I saw it, I, I thought it would not be like this. So good news. But like when, when you put those in perspective, you're like, yeah, it's still a movie, Babylon, right? Like this, were movie theaters sold out 100% of the time at the time? I, I don't know. Were they? Like, I don't think so. I, I just watched um, the the last Francois Truffaut movie called Confidentially Your... No, wait, I'm confusing this. Uh, I, the Fablemans. This scene happened in The Fablemans where when Steven Spielberg is young, he's in the Boy Scouts and him and his friends go to see a movie. I think it's uh, The Man Who Killed Liberty Vance by John Ford. And the theater is almost empty. There's like a handful of people in there. Um, this might be the time of day it's being shown at. Maybe it's a it's a weekday. People are at work or something. But yeah, I mean, this happens. I, I think it's just more how often it happens now when you just go to the theater. I think Top Gun Maverick was pretty full when I went to see it. But that's an exception. Um, most movies, it's like, yeah, there's... There's like 15, 20 people in the audience at most. And like, I'm always very intrigued by who they are, you know, because it's like, what's like, you know, 45 year old woman comes to see Blue Velvet alone? You know, like, I'm just very intrigued by these sorts of characters. I saw the 400 Blows a few days ago at the Cinema Center. And as when the movie was finished and the light came up, um, and everyone is sort of Packing, I could see that people were somewhat surprised to see who they must assume was a Frenchman, which, yeah, I am. But I had a few smiles, like, aha. <laughs> so for them, they're like, oh, they watched a French film and there was a French person in the audience. I'm, like, yeah, happy. I'm happy for this lady. <laughs> that, that nice little way, sort of sign of the head that they did. I'm like, thanks. I, <laughs> I'll take it. Well, listen, I think this would be a good point to sign off on our regular episode. We're going to extend this a little bit for our Patreon episode. So if, if you're a patron, you're going to hear the full episode. We're going to be talking about why Babylon bombed at the box office. Give our thoughts on that. If you're interested in hearing that conversation, head on over to patreon.com slash now it's dark. Uh, but thank you for listening to this episode. We got into a lot of detail here. And for our audience listening for the free episode, I want to thank you, Sebastian, for joining us here today uh, and providing a lot of insight, uh, humor, wit. Yeah, thank you. We, we meant to record one of those for a while, and I'm glad that movie made it, so, so thanks. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed.